Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim, and I'm a member here. Today's reading is from Galatians 1, 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word for us today. Morning, church. It's good to be together. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Let's pray as we look to God's word. Father, as we are just now beginning this new series through the book of Galatians, Help us today. Help us by the power of your spirit and do, God, the work that only you can do. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, we actually wrapped up a sermon series on Abraham from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. And that series was entitled, The Promise Only God Can Keep. It began with God promising to give Abraham this huge family, to raise that family up into a great nation, and somehow to bless all the other nations, or as it says in Genesis, all the families of the earth through this one family, Abraham's family, who will become the Old Testament nation of Israel. And if you remember, God gave Abraham circumcision, to sort of set this family, to set Israel apart from all the other nations. And the point is basically to say, this family is the one I'm using to redeem all the others. Those who are circumcised, that will become a very important detail to understand in this letter here. But one week after another in that series in Genesis, we saw that God was the only one who could keep this promise. Anytime Abraham got out ahead of God and tried to make the promise happen on his own, everything broke. If you remember, he tried selling his wife twice so that he could stay alive, and in so doing, he totally jeopardized the promise. Another time, he tried to force God's hand by having a son with his servant when he was getting impatient, but God did not carry on the promise through that son. In fact, he and his descendants would grow on to become an enemy of Israel. So that backfired. And it wasn't until near the end of that series, after God finally gave Abraham and Sarah a son named Isaac, that Abraham passed God's ultimate Test And he passed that test, if you remember, by being willing to sacrifice this son he had been waiting so long for. And this is meant to show us he finally got it. He understood he didn't have to make the promise happen. He didn't have to cling to this son he had been waiting for as if the promise depended on him. What Abraham needed was faith in the God who made him the promise. That was the key. He believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And if you remember, the very last sermon in that series ended with kind of a cliffhanger. Because when Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, 
It came time for them to have children. They had twins, which is an interesting development. And, and those twins, Jacob and Esau, were fighting in her womb. And if you remember why they were fighting, God tells them it's because there are two nations in her womb. In other words, not just one nation in there. Not every child born into Abraham's family is actually a part of this promise in the same way. And that really is meant to create a tension for us at that point. It's meant to make us wonder, well, what kind of family is God raising up here? And how do we know who is really a part of it? And it is here in Paul's letter to the Galatians that these questions start to come into much clearer focus. Now, obviously, we are fast-forwarding from basically the very beginning of the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. So a lot has happened. But most importantly, God has sent us his son, Jesus Christ, a direct descendant of Abraham, who claimed to be a heavenly king, who died, who rose again, and who now offers salvation to people of all nations. He even sent out his Jewish disciples to make disciples of all nations, which leads to another question. It's kind of another knot that we have to untangle here. Well, if Christ is now king of all nations, well, then how should we think about that Old Testament nation of Israel? How should we think about this family that God's been raising up ever since he made that promise back in Genesis chapter 12? For instance, when people from all these other nations, when the Gentiles come to faith in Christ, do they need to become a part of Israel? Do we need to circumcise them and make them Jews so that they can join the family? How's this supposed to work? <laughs> Who is in the family now? And how do you get into the family? This was by far the most explosive controversy in the days of the early church because for any Jew, if you can imagine, this would have been a colossal paradigm shift. The idea that anyone could be a part of God's family without being a Jew would have been unthinkable. But remember, church, remember that series we've just done in Genesis that this whole point of God's promise to raise up Abraham's family was always that he would bless all the families of the earth. Well, in the book of Acts, we read about this Jew and Gentile controversy building up and then actually being resolved in the council in Jerusalem. Uh, the apostles and the leaders of the church got together and they determined, no, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to become members of the church. And it was somewhere in and around that time as the relationship between the Jewish community and the church of Jesus Christ was being sorted out, that Paul wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. And most scholars agree this is one of Paul's first letters, and it is certainly his juiciest letter. It's his sassiest letter. Uh, this is a, an intense letter, and it is a confrontational letter from beginning to end because Paul is writing this letter to address a huge problem. And if we want to make sense of the letter, there's a lot of ways to get it wrong. We have to understand the problem. A group of Jewish Christian missionaries were leading these Galatian churches astray, and here's how they were doing it. 
They were gathering Gentiles into the wrong family in the wrong way. Now, I have to tell you, it's taken me a lot of time to try and, and summarize this problem. There's a lot of layers to it. To get it into one simple sentence, I think that is pretty precise uh, the diagnosis of this problem. Very carefully chosen each word. We're going to come back to this idea again and again because it is central to Paul's argument. These missionaries were gathering Gentile Christians into the covenant family of Israel through circumcision when in reality, Paul will explain, God is now gathering people of all nations into a new covenant family. And he is not doing it by circumcision. He is doing it through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, our king. And what we are going to see is that this was no matter of opinion or preference for Paul. He, he could not just agree to disagree for Paul Everything was at stake in this problem. The gospel was at stake. The justification of sinners was at stake. The family of God was at stake. Everything, but most importantly, God's age-old promise to glorify himself among all nations was at stake. Because it turns out when we gather people into the wrong family in the wrong way, God is not glorified as a result. We are glorified. And this is the real motivation that drove these troublemaking missionaries. They wanted glory for themselves, and that is what Paul sets out to sort of undo in this letter. And he does that even here in just the first few words of it. The thing is, the more we understand Paul's argument throughout this letter, the more we will appreciate the introduction to this letter. The truth is, in this introduction, saying hello is about the last thing on Paul's mind. Uh, he does say hello, but instead he is laying a foundation for his argument. And he does that by getting our attention off of him, off of ourselves, off of his readers, and onto this truth that God is creating this family we're all a part of, not us. God is creating it. This is the primary claim I'm going to preach today from our text, and this, I think, is the primary claim we are going to see echoing throughout every corner of this book, every verse and every chapter. In the same way that only God could keep his promise to multiply Abraham's family, and in the same way that faith in him was the key to that promise to multiply Abraham's family, now that he has kept that promise, now that he has sent his son to be the king of all nations, the church is a spiritual family that only he can create, and he is doing it in the same way he always has. He is doing it by faith. Now, usually when you get a phone call, you can probably tell how urgent that phone call is in the first few seconds of the call. Do you know what I mean by that? When you, when you say hello, if the person on the other line says, oh, hey, how you doing? That's not an urgent phone call. You could tell right away. But if you say hello and you hear a quick, hey, and then they get right to business, that's an urgent phone call. We've all had these, right? Hey, uh, Lewis fell at recess. Uh, they think he broke his collarbone. We're on our way to the ER, right? All right. Uh, Hey, you locked me out of the house again, and you went to work. Uh, can you come back? Can you let me in? 
You get the idea, right? This is a little urgent. I don't have time for a warm greeting. We got business to do here, right? This is exactly the way that Paul begins and greets these churches in Galatia. He gives them a quick high, but more than that, he is going to mention four things that only God can do for this family. And so here's my goal today. My goal is to show you these four things but then drawing on the rest of the letter, my goal is to show you how the Galatians were getting these four things wrong and why it really, really mattered. So just for clarity, in one sense, I am preaching the first five verses of this letter today. In another sense, I'm using those five verses to preach an overview of the entire book, okay? So we know what we're doing. The first thing Paul mentions is this. Number one, God is the one who empowers our ministry. It's like he can't even get his hello out before he starts arguing here. He says, hey there, Paul an apostle, and then right away, not from men, nor through men. He's arguing, right? But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, you're all members of these churches, I know, I'm an apostle sent to preach the gospel and gather churches. Yes, I know, but we didn't do any of that. We didn't do it. There is no man responsible for making me an apostle. There is no man I need to please or satisfy to continue as an apostle. I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul wants the Galatians to know that his ministry is empowered through the triune God. It is empowered through this great work of redemption that he's accomplished through the resurrection of God the Son, the second member of the Trinity. But by pointing this out, Paul is very subtly and very skillfully preparing the Galatians to hear his accusation that they have completely lost sight of that truth. They now seem to think that they have the power they need to accomplish God's plan. They seem to think that they can gather people into this spiritual family, which we will see, but we're also going to see that that had not always been the case. Something had changed. In chapter 3, Paul will say, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, you used to understand this. You used to be empowered by the God that I'm empowered by and the message that I preach. And then he continues, Having begun by the Spirit, that is God's Spirit, are you now being perfected? By the flesh, that is your flesh, just your physical body and life. In other words, again, something has changed here. Why is it that you've lost sight of this? God is the one who empowers our ministry, not us. There's also a really subtle dig happening in this introduction. It's kind of easy to miss. Uh, notice Paul addresses this letter from himself, and he says, all the brothers who are with me. Now, we know that Paul devoted his life uh, to preaching the gospel and gathering churches among Gentiles. He explains this, actually, in chapter 2, that God called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And trust me, it will be crystal clear by the end of this letter, he was certainly not circumcising any of those Gentiles. So many of the brothers who would have been with Paul would have been uncircumcised Gentiles. And yet here he is in the second verse of this letter insisting not only are they brothers, 
But they're writing this letter with him to correct the Galatians for insisting that they would have needed to be circumcised in order to become real brothers. Do you see that? In other words, he's basically saying, you might not think these brothers are brothers, but I know better. They're brothers, and they're writing to kind of set you straight here with me. As Paul will say in chapter 3, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And he says, and if you are Christ's, he continues, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And otherwise, in other words, these brothers are in. They are members of God's family. They don't need you to circumcise them because they belong to Christ. You see this? It is God's power. It is our faith in him and the son that he has raised from the dead that empowers this family we're a part of and the ministry we share as members of the family. And so the takeaway, I think, for us today, the warning we need to heed from Galatians is that we will be tempted to think we have the power we need. We will be tempted. In the months ahead, I want us to see from Galatians that our church is not just some cultural phenomenon. It, it is not just a religious movement. It is not just a social club that we have the power to create or sustain on our own. God is the one who created and is sustaining our church and the ministry we do together. In, in all the most important ways, we did not start Redemption Church at all. As members, none of us just chose to join this church. It's, it's not that simple. And none of us ultimately are responsible for sustaining this church. This is a spiritual family that has been created and sustained by the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But along the way, we will be tempted to think that we do have the power. For the Galatians, it was this religious act and, and sort of an ethnic pride that lured them away from God's power. Well, we just need to circumcise people to get them into the family. We could do that. But we could fall prey to the same temptation today in many ways. We could easily start to think, well, well, never mind what people actually believe about Jesus. That's not the key. Uh, we just need to sort of lure them in with the right marketing or, or with the right mixture of attractive programs that are designed to meet their needs. Or we just need to get them through our church membership process. Or we just need to get them on our political team, and then we can really make a difference, right? If we just do these things, then we can create God's family and get people into it because we have the power. See, this is a dangerous path to walk for many reasons, but most importantly because it assumes that God's family is just a human thing, that there's nothing truly spiritual or transcendent about it, as if we can give people the peace that they need and we can deal with people's sins in the flesh. No spiritual stuff necessary when the truth is next. Number two, God is the one who gives grace and peace. God is the one. This is what Paul says he wants for the members of these churches in verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace. But notice, not from just anyone, and not even from him, actually. 
Grace to you and peace, he says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he is saying this to prepare them for an accusation. They have been totally missing it. In fact, in next week's passage, Paul's going to start this letter off with a real bang when he says in just the next verse, if you look at verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, you used to know where grace came from. You used to, but you're deserting the one who called you in grace. In chapter 2, he will accuse them of nullifying or basically just canceling out the grace of God. And in chapter 5, he will tell all those who accept circumcision, he will say, you are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, he says. This is why Paul starts by praying that, that they would receive grace from God because they seem to have forgotten where that grace came from. In chapter 5, he will also explain that peace is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. That is, true peace is only possible for us when this God is alive in us and living through us. And so the idea here is that we don't get these things. We don't get grace and peace by being circumcised into an earthly religious family. If we want to experience grace, if we want anyone to have lasting peace, then we have to know, we need to understand, they will never get those things from us. They will only get them if they get them from God. God is the one who gives grace and peace, and he does it through faith in Christ, not through circumcision. And so the takeaway for us, I think, the, the warning we need to heed here is that we will be tempted to take credit for God's redemptive work. We will be tempted to take credit. As people do hear the gospel in the life of our church, as people do repent and trust in Christ, as the fruits of the Spirit do begin to surface in their lives, we will be tempted to say, look what we've done. We will be tempted to let the spiritual power and success of our church's ministry tell the story of our greatness and our power, as if all the good spiritual work that's being done here is coming from us. Look at all the grace and peace that people experience in our church. Look at all the people that we have helped to overcome the power of sin. This can be a very subtle kind of spiritual cancer, because all the while, as we are blaspheming God, we are also, at the very same time, zealous for all kinds of spiritual things. These were missionaries who allegedly cared great deals about preaching and churches and all the rest of it, but they did not particularly care about the one thing that gives life to our preaching and life to our churches, that is namely the precious grace of this God, the absolutely free gift of salvation that he gives to people like us who do not deserve it. Church, the thing that makes our Christian faith so powerful, the thing that makes our church so attractive is not the warmth of our community or the strength of any one personality or our style of doing church. 
No, it is the fact that we have no spiritual power unto ourselves and that our lives were in fact so unattractive and yet this glorious God, he's overcome our shameful unworthiness by sending us his son. By sending us his son to shed his very own blood to wash us clean of our sins and to adopt us into this family that we have no business being a part of. But here's the thing. If we turn around and we try to take credit for that redemption that we did not deserve, we will nullify the whole thing. All of it will come crashing This is what we're going to see in Galatians, I trust. In two weeks, uh, we're going to be baptizing three men and welcoming 10 new members into the life of our church. Two weeks, May 22nd. And that night, each of them will be sharing their testimony, the story of their salvation. So just a tip to you, if you are sharing your testimony, here's what makes a good testimony. Give Christ all the credit for your testimony. That is just a... That, that's, a, that's a varsity tip, okay? That's going to help that go a lot better. But the same is true for the rest of us as well. As we see God growing our church over the years, we need to be very careful that we not take credit for this whatsoever. Welcoming members is not about our glory. Welcoming members is about declaring God's power and the incredible grace of this gospel. In fact, by the way, I hope you see throughout Galatians, this is why we practice church membership. We practice it to ensure that we are gathering people into the right family in the right way. By the power of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone can start a nonprofit and lead people through a membership process. Okay? Only God can resurrect sinful people by the power of his grace. And so what aspects of our spiritual lives are we tempted to take credit for? When we lead a ministry or preach a sermon that people find helpful, when we stay devoted to our spouse or we faithfully uh, raise Christian children for decades even, when we regularly invest in other members of this church or even our unbelieving neighbors, do we do these things to bring glory to ourselves? Or do we do these things from a deep place of gratitude for the grace and the peace that we've received in Christ? Do we do them, for instance, to celebrate Paul's next point, number three, which is this, God is the one who delivered us from this evil age. God is the one. Look back with me at verse 3. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 4, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of of our God and Father. Now that phrase, this present evil age, just refers to life as we know it now. In a fallen, sinful world that's, that's corrupted by sin. This is what Christ has come to deliver us from. And again, by mentioning this, Paul is preparing the Galatians to hear an accusation later in the letter that for some reason they have forgotten it. They did not seem interested in being delivered from this present evil age. 
They wanted their lives to go as well as possible in this present evil age. So in chapter 4, Paul will actually talk about this present Jerusalem, which just means the literal capital city there in Judea um, on the earth, the the city where Christ was crucified, uh, and likely, by the way, where these missionaries came from, Jerusalem. And in particular, he says in chapter 4 that this present Jerusalem is in slavery, but the Jerusalem above, he says. In other words, sort of a spiritual Heavenly Jerusalem, almost. That one, he says, is free. The point is this. You're trying to circumcise people into the wrong kingdom with the wrong capital city. There is now, there is a new heavenly Jerusalem, a new heavenly Israel with a new heavenly capital city where Christ is truly seated, even today, as king. And those who are truly part of God's family are ultimately citizens of that kingdom, whether they're a citizen of this Israel or not. And by the way, uh, this is maybe why John sees what? Coming down from heaven in Revelation chapter 1, he sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. The idea is this. That Jerusalem is not here yet. That Jerusalem is not on the earth because we're still in this present evil age. But Christ... God's eternal heavenly king of that Jerusalem has come to the earth to deliver us from this present evil age. But these missionaries did not seem interested in all of that stuff. In fact, toward the end of the letter, Paul describes their motivations in this way. He says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, in the entire letter, this is the most clear explanation as to why these men were circumcising Gentiles. And I want you to notice there are two reasons he mentions. First, they wanted to make a good showing in the flesh, which just means that they wanted to sort of elevate themselves to a higher status, prominence in the church. And also, they wanted to avoid persecution. Uh, presumably from their unbelieving Jewish peers. Here's what I want you to notice first. Both of those motivations are about self-preservation in this present evil age. And both of those motivations could easily be accomplished by circumcising Gentiles. And here's how. In the very next verse, Paul even says, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, as missionaries... They could kind of brag about all the wicked Gentiles that they've turned into Jews, basically. Circumcising Gentiles created sort of a class system within the family of God where Jews were at the very top of the family because they'd always been in the family, and Gentiles were beneath them, which made, by the way, for a very good showing in the flesh in this present age. It also would have helped them to avoid persecution, Because the idea that a Jew had to repent and trust in some rabbi carpenter to enter God's family would have been incredibly offensive. They would have thought, what are you talking about? I'm circumcised. I've always been in the family. And also, remember this. Remember that it was the Jews who had Jesus crucified to begin with. In fact, they even had him crucified precisely because he claimed to be their king. And we saw this 
on Easter Sunday from Acts chapter 2. Paul got up, and, or Peter rather, got up and preached at Pentecost. He said, men of Israel, men of Israel, hear these words. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. You, Jewish men, men of Israel, by the hands of lawless men. Now imagine how Jewish leaders would have felt hearing that just 40 days after the crucifixion. You know that guy you just murdered? He's the whole point of God's age-old plan of redemption. <laughs> He's actually the entire reason God raised up Abraham's family into this nation to begin with. That is offensive. And it's actually the reason why many Christians were killed in the early church. Uh, but circumcising Gentiles into the kingdom of Israel had a way of removing that offense because it treated these local churches as if they were just one small branch of Judaism rather than the entire point and the very culmination of Judaism. And that little detail right there made these missionaries' lives a lot cushier in this present age because they could preach Christ without jeopardizing their social status or even their lives within the Jewish community. This is what Paul is getting at later in chapter 5 when he says, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? <laughs> in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, if I was just preaching that Gentiles could be circumcised into Israel, why are all these Israelites trying to kill me? Why is my gospel that I preach still so offensive to them? It's because my gospel clearly states that they killed our long-awaited Messiah. And now they have to repent and bow to him like I did to become a part of God's new covenant family. That is offensive. And if your goal is to make a good showing in the flesh... If your goal is to avoid persecution in this present evil age, you will be tempted to make that gospel a little less clear. <laughs> and so the takeaway for us, I think here, the warning we need to heed is this. We will be tempted to blend in to this present age. We'll be tempted to blend in. If we're clear enough about this gospel and what it really means, if we keep insisting that no one can join our church unless they repent and bow to King Jesus, someday some people may take objection to that. Uh, they may even make our lives very hard and uncomfortable as a result. And if they do, I have to say it will be very tempting to start being a bit less clear about the gospel. Oh, uh, you don't like the idea that Christ had to come and die to deal with your sin. That's okay. Have you heard about our Sunday fun day? We get some lunch. We go to the park. It's really great. It's just like everybody else, you know, everybody, right? There's no difference. Much like the Galatians, we can be tempted to blend into this present age. Why? Because we want to make a good showing in the flesh, and we want to avoid persecution. But church, this is not the way of Christ. It's not. Now here's the thing. It does seem more pleasant than the alternative, and, and I think we like this idea that Christ is always pleasant, 
Let us not forget, though, that Jesus did not make a good showing in the flesh. He was crucified in the flesh. And that was the entire reason he came. That Jesus is not interested in keeping us from rejection and persecution in this present age. He is far more interested in delivering us from this present age. And so in what ways are we tempted to turn down the volume on the good news of Jesus? Because we're just not quite sure how people will hear it or if they will hear it as good news. And we want to make a good showing in the flesh. The truth is, if we just want to protect our status and our comfort in this present age, it is probably because we've forgotten this last point, number four. God is the one who deserves glory forever and ever. This is the last thing Paul says. Uh, after repeatedly getting our attention off of men and onto God's plan, God's power, God's blessings, Paul finally says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now I trust that you see how this introduction works and what Paul is trying to do here. The takeaway for us is this. We will be tempted to steal the glory that only God deserves. This is the problem beneath the circumcision problem. Uh, this is the very bottom of Paul's entire argument. If we gather people into God's family by anything other than faith in his son, King Jesus, we are distorting the truth of the gospel, we are nullifying the power of his grace, and we are tampering with his age-old promise to glorify himself among all nations. And it's all because we want the glory that only he deserves for creating this family. So as we prepare for this journey through Galatians together, let's be prayerfully considering who does our salvation and our Christian life bring glory to? Is it us or is it God? Who does our church exist to make much of? Is it men and women like you and me or is it God? Because if we are truly sons of Abraham by faith, if we have been adopted by God through his son, Jesus Christ, there can only be one right answer. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this letter. And as we prepare to look at it, we pray that you would be preparing our hearts to be changed by it even. God, would you use this letter in the life of our church to fix our eyes on you, on your son, Jesus Christ, who came and gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Help us to live with that kind of spiritual clarity. Help us to live with the faith in you that we see commended in the Bible over and over again. And above all, God, we pray that we would adore you through faith in Christ above all else. In Jesus' name, amen.